Well, it is my favorite time of the year, not because of the presence. Watch it, here comes a preacher, one-liner, but because of his presence. It's my favorite time of the year because I, 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 I believe um, from the beginning of all creation, the cravings and the longings of the human heart were put there by God, but we have been on a perpetual adventure of misfiring. Uh, we've been aiming at the wrong target for a really long time. But Christmas or Advent arrival coming is the time of year we celebrate God saying, enough already. I'm going to give you my son. I'm going to show you exactly what I'm like so you can know what to aim at. Where forever in the past, God spoke to his people through the prophets and through the scriptures and through angels and um, through mighty acts of power, through dreams and visions. But in these last days, he has spoken to us definitively once and for all time through his son. And why I love Advent, and I, as a gospel preacher, it, it's like five weeks on a buzz. Whatever that's like. I don't know. I never had. Uh, but it is getting caught up in the wonderful story that God in Christ is reclaiming everything for his glory. That God in Christ is reconciling. What do I mean by reconcile? bringing two parties that are at odds together, restoring relationship, that God in Christ is redeeming. What do I mean by redeeming, you Bible scholars? Buying us out of our slavery, right? That God in Christ is ransoming us. Not only does he pay the price for our deliverance, but he also has the power to deliver us. How many know there's a difference between being having enough in your bank account to pay the cost? It's a whole other thing to have the power to actually affect that which you've purchased. And it's this time of year I just get fired up. Because Paul tells us the reason the Son of God came in 1 Timothy 1.15 is to save sinners. So we can debate why did he come and what, what, what why, why. Central is he wants to save the world. And uh, anyone been saved by his power and his love and his grace? Can you say amen? amen. Anyone need to be saved? Amen. Same people should be saying amen. <laughs> As uh, Papa Hal Perkins said, he, Jesus doesn't just save us once. He saves us all the time as we learn to walk with him. <laughs> Come on, elbow the person next to you and say, you need to hear that. <laughs> so as we decorate tomorrow and we dive into this season of Advent, um, I want to just continue our thought from last week. Um, we're going to go on a little bit of a journey over the next five weeks. Um, I, I, in many ways, I, I sense or I 
I feel like I could preach the same nine verses 15 different ways as I've continued to study the Beatitudes, if you were with us this last week in the Sermon on the Mount. I just continued to reflect and meditate, and I'm like, man, I want another shot at it. So I might preach a little bit from the Beatitudes again, but we've got to continue. I realize that The Beatitudes and this, this manifesto for life in the kingdom as a disciple of Jesus in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it makes no sense if we don't understand a little bit about the one who is on that mountain proclaiming and making the audacious claims that he's making. And so if you'll allow me to do five minutes, and I'm going to literally set my timer of work and then we'll dive back into the Beatitudes. Is that okay? Everyone say chatty, take five minutes. Because I'm literally doing a timer right now. So even if I don't get to finish, I'm gonna be finished. So why should we listen to the, to the, to the man, Jesus, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and the man, Christ Jesus, today, 2017? Well, in, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew tells us the point of his book. Matthew is one of the disciples of Jesus, a former tax collector. And he says, at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you have your Bible, why don't you just open them up or your, your smartphone or your app, whatever you use. This is the genealogy of the, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Woe Toledo. So why should we listen to this man on this mountain that we're going to look out for like the next several, several weeks? I just want to do a little groundwork and I'm eating up time, precious time. The genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, how many know Jesus did not just airdrop or plop into the middle of history and ignore all that came before him? Right? That would be silly. That would be like a comic book. But Jesus himself is deeply rooted and anchored in the story of God's redemption, rescuing plan from the beginning of all creation. If you agree, say amen. Yeah. Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the king, the ruler, this craving, this longing for a ruler and a king is as ancient and as old as Genesis 1 itself. When God made man and woman in his own image, unlike every other religion in the ancient Near East and every other religion since this religion, we were not to make an idol in the image or the fashion of our God because he's already done that when he made us, his image bearers, to look like him in the midst of his temple, the garden, to mediate and to bring glory and honor and to point to the world what our God is like. That's why we're not allowed to make idols, because God already made an image icon bearer. You and me, look to the person next to you and say, you are what God looks like a little bit on your good days, when you do your hair, when you brush your teeth, before you ate your turkey. Just kidding. Let's get out of those waters fast. So what's happening here? The genealogy, Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the Deliverer, the Anointed One, Son of David, Son of Abraham. Well, how many know the Garden Project did not go that well? It didn't take very long, actually only two chapters, 
after chapter one, chapter three, we see humanity choosing to eat of the fruit that we've been eating ever since. The fruit of self-governance, self-rule, self-sovereignty, self-kingdom. Has anyone ever eaten that fruit and tasted its bitter result? All of us. A world in which we run the shots and God is on the fringes as opposed to God's original agenda, God at the center infusing everything and us right there with him in partnership. But we'd rather rule on our own. So Genesis 3 through 11 is this wild, seemingly chaotic, spinning out of control human project of trying to rule the world in our own strength and according to our own measure of what is good and evil. How many know that story did not end very well? In Genesis 11, the crescendo of which is this human project to build a name for ourselves, proving to the world there is nothing that we cannot do when we are calling the shots. God will have none of it. He gets down and he confuses their language because he knows at the end of that road will only be perpetual oppression, depression, death, despair, decay, and darkness. Because there is only one in whom there is life, and he is the light of all humanity, and his name is Jesus, the rightful king. So in Genesis 11, there is a great scattering, and in Genesis 12, what God wanted to do for all the world, he says, okay, the wickedness of their heart, Genesis 6, 6 through 7, is so great that what I wanted to do with everyone, now I'm going to do through one family. So he called a man Abraham. This is Matthew 1, 1. And through Abraham, all the way, two-thirds of your Bible, and I'm doing great, I got 30 seconds. You have Abraham. I'm going to leave your family. I'm going to bless you, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And through your offspring, singular seed, I am going to bless the world. My original plan in Genesis 1, 3 through 11 was wild, crazy, and out of control. Genesis 12, through a family that I am going to call, not because they're great in number, but because of my own choosing, because of my own love and my own affection. So he calls Abraham to himself. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, God makes a covenant, goes through the pieces of animals. You can read it. It's amazing. Thick cloud of darkness. It is a one-sided covenant. In other words, Abraham, this covenant will not depend on you. It depends on me and my faithfulness. Genesis 17, he gives him the covenant of circumcision, which is to mark the men of those who are called out to look categorically different than all of the other men and therefore all of the other humanity around them. 22, the promised son, give me your son. He lays his son Isaac on the altar. Before he slays him, God spares Isaac because it's through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. 49, when Israel is dying, he blesses his sons. This is Bible 101 really fast, but it just, this is why we listen to Jesus. He says, to his son Judah, there's going to be a king that comes through your line, a king. And the scepter of righteousness and justice will never depart from his hand. Genesis 1, a whole long journey. He says, but your people are going to be oppressed for 400 years. He raises up Moses, delivers them. I don't have time to go through all of it. But Judah, and from Judah comes this guy named who? David 
Remember, this is Matthew 1.1. So what do we see right here at the beginning of Matthew's gospel? We see this, that Jesus is the seed through which the world will be blessed And Jesus is the son of David, the rightful king who will rule on an eternal throne, never to be outvoted or outwitted or pushed aside. So Jesus, if you read Matthew, and I've loved reading Matthew 1 through 4 all week, just the story of the birth, and we're going to really zone in on it over Advent season. Just wanted to give you some clarity because it really, this background helps the four or five verses we're gonna press into today. That Jesus did not just come, poof, here I am. Jesus came deeply rooted and entrenched in the story of Israel. Are you tracking with me? Say amen. If you're not, come talk to me afterwards and I'll point you to some great resources and scriptures. I got a lot of them. So Jesus the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. Jesus then lives 30 years in obscurity. I love it. As a technon, as a stone worker or a carpenter, depending on who you read. And he waits in patience until he sees his cousin John the Baptist in the wilderness calling all of Israel to repentance into the waters of the Jordan. I was baptized in those dirty waters and my feet, it was the freakiest experience of my life. Your feet, you were eaten by fish in the Jordan. That's a true story, man. Everyone who came into the waters, immediately it was freaky. They were eating off the old man. I'm not joking, we're trying to have the spiritual experience and baptizing like 35 people, but everyone's trying not to laugh because it's so funny and it tickles so bad. Literally, I'm not exaggerating here. I've been to the Jordan where fish eat your feet while you're trying to be baptized and have a spiritual moment. That has no uh, theological uh, nutrition at all, and I apologize, but... um, so once you got over the fish eating your, your feet, you could have a special baptism in the Jordan. But Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, and what do we see at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, 16, 17, and 18? We see the Father splitting heaven, and he says what? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Again, these words are wrapped around thousands of years of a story the crescendo of which is Jesus himself. The son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the seed, the offspring singular through which the nations will be blessed. And he is the king who will reign, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 11 through 16, who will reign on the throne of David forever. Someone say forever. So why do I love Advent, especially in the tumultuous times in which we live? And I'm here to tell you, we live in some pretty tumultuous times. If you agree, say amen. Amen. The Christian's hope is firmly anchored to one who eternally reigns on his throne. That is really a cause for peace, a a cause for prophetic resistance to entering into the many, many narratives of fear and worry and anxiety. How many know it's easy to give in to those puppies? 
Just shake your head at me. It's easy. Or name-calling or name-blanging the Christian, as we're looking at in the Beatitudes, we have a response, and it is what not one of fear and intimidation or insecurity, but one of wholehearted, single focus upon the one who is ruling and reigning and who will return to make every wrong thing right definitively and forever, and his name is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. This is the gospel. So that king, the son That king, the servant son, is the one who stands on the mountain and begins to give us the text that we're going to look at today. So I'll start where we left off, and then we'll just go through verse, cha- verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. I apologize. I had, I, when I start printing things and there's 15 pages and I try to summarize so you don't get bored Inevitably, I left some cool things out, but come nerd out with me after the service, please, because I love nerding out on the Bible. Do I have any other fellow nerds? You're not even a nerd. You're amazing. But uh, anyway, so Jesus makes it through the wilderness, which just has so many ancient echoes to Israel, to Moses. I mean, it's unbelievable. We don't have time to go through all of that. But he overcomes the test and the temptation of the enemy to try to accomplish God's royal purposes for God's royal son through means other than the cross. That's what the temptations in the wilderness are all about. You can take my word for it. Study it yourself. It's amazing. Someday I'll get to preach on it. It's an amazing passage. Jesus emerges from the wilderness, and his first message is what his cousin was preaching in the wilderness, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Where is it, Jesus? It's coming in and through me. That's an audacious claim. One in which might cost you your life. (laughs) It did. Repent. Change everything you've ever thought and reinterpret it in light of who I am, what I'm saying, and what I will accomplish through my life, death, and resurrection. That is Matthew 4.17. In light of everything you've thought, the ancient story of Israel and the hope that they would be a light to the nations, they would be salty, they would, they would fulfill the demands of the covenant, they would say yes to the blessings of Deuteronomy 28 and no to the curses of three times the length of Deuteronomy 29. They would mediate God's purposes, God's plan to all the nations. Yippee, Jesus is saying, what every one of my ancestors failed to do, I am doing fully and completely. Therefore, repent and acknowledge that there is only one king of the kingdom of heaven that's breaking in, and it's me. I I wish we could go back and, and... I've been on those Galilean hills and to hear this 30-year-old proclaim such a claim and then to go forth in the passage that we're going to look at. Are you tracking with me? This is just the intro stuff. We're going to get there. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed 
are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of justice or righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way. Come on, somebody. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Unbelievable, don't have time to go through any of it. I wanna preach all of it again, but I can't. Maybe in six years when we do another Sermon on the Mount series. I don't know, but I wanna go after all of it again because it just keeps unfolding, but you go after it yourself this week. All in favor, say amen. amen. Live there this week, those, those verses. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you don't live and find yourself, the good news of the kingdom is for those I've described in the Beatitudes. So if you find yourself poor, don't try to go out and earn your way into the kingdom. He wants to give you the gift of the kingdom. If you find yourself mourning because you're in a situation that is not as it should be, don't go looking elsewhere. Continue to cry out because he will vindicate and he will respond. If you're longing and you're hungry and you're thirsting for God to bring justice to the nations, to your family, to whatever situation, do not short-circuit the process. Continue to cry out for the righteous one to reign and rule, and he will. Don't quit. Those who are merciful, those who have to fight and put to death the old man, instead of getting even or actually one-upping the one who hurt you, you're praying for mercy. Don't give up because mercy comes to those who show that mercy. And on and on it goes. I don't have time. But those beatitudes, they paint a picture that no one would have painted if they were ruling the world. Because the way the kingdoms of the world work is blessed are those who are the good enoughs, the good enoughs, the smart enoughs. Are you tracking with me? This is why Jesus is so compelling. If you agree, say amen. He's saying my kingdom, what I'm about in the world is for those who could never get there apart from me. Yes, that's all of us. I like it. At least that's me. I'll claim that good news today. Jesus is saying, when you live that and you find yourself amongst those that that describes or you yourself are in the grinder of life, how many know it can be a grinder? No. How many know it is a grinder? Because we don't see things as they will be. Just read Hebrews 2, 8 through 16. One of amazing passages. We don't see the world in subjection to the King of kings and Lord of lords yet. So we live right here in this grinder. And it can be tough. Jesus says, 
Do not lose your kingdom distinctives or there's nothing salty or light-giving, life-giving about you. So the salt and the light is all about, you can't lose the distinctiveness of that which I just said is blessed. If you do, salt has no flavor. Light is under a bushel. And then he gets to this crescendo. And this really, what I'm gonna share now, four verses turns the whole sermon, chapter five, six, and seven, and it sets the course, the trajectory for the rest of what Jesus will say on the Mount of Beatitudes. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Uh, I don't understand what that means, Chatty. Essentially, Jesus is saying the whole Old Covenant, the whole Old Testament. There were three sections to the Hebrew Bible. Someone tell me what they are. Torah, law, what else? Nevim, the prophets, and what else? The writings. But shorthand, law and prophets. Jesus is saying, my ministry and what I'm ushering into the earth is not a new story. It's an old story brought into a new light and reality because I alone am the one who can take it there. I didn't come to abolish the two-thirds of your scripture, fellow constituencies and fellow Israelites. I did not come to throw the plan away. I came to actually fulfill the plan all along. Do, he, he goes on to quote, look at this in verse 17 of chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to, here's the magic word in Matthew, fulfill them. To bring them to their intended consequence, their intended conclusion. All of the promises of a seed, of a king who would reign, who would rule, who would bring justice, who would flip the narrative and the script that humanity has written when they have been the one on the throne, which is the belittlement of the oppressed, the poor, the bound, the blind, the broken, the dead, the, the, the kingdoms of this world that circle and they, they, they propagate their agenda through murder and violence and hatred. Jesus is saying, the kingdom that everyone longs for, I'm not abolishing those ancient cravings for a kingdom that means justice and life and peace, prosperity and blessing for all. I'm not abolishing that hope. I'm taking it to a place that no other human king could. That's good. Preach it. What no one else can do, I'm doing. I didn't come to abolish it. That craving, that longing of 1 Samuel 8 when Israel rejected their theocratic, monotheistic plan, which was pretty darn cool if you ask me, although we probably would have cast our vote against God as well. Come on, somebody, say amen. That, that ancient 1 Samuel 8 when Israel asked for a king and Samuel's like, dude, you don't know what you're doing. Look at this scripture with me real quick in 1 Samuel chapter 8. You got it for me? This is amazing. All of the elders of the people gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said, you are old. Thank you very much. <laughs> Come on, if you're a prophet that has a clout with God, what would you say to them at that point? It's supposed to be a joke. Forget it. <laughs> you and your sons do not follow your ways. Appoint a king to lead us like all the other nations. Someone say all the other nations. But when they said, give us a king, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to what the people are saying. It's not you they've rejected. It's me as their king. Someone say, me as their king. They've done this since the day I brought them out of Egypt, forsaking me, serving other gods. They've been doing it. Now listen to them, but warn them. Someone say, warn them. 
and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as, read the last two words, his own rights. This is where the rubber meets the road. So Samuel told told all the words of Yahweh to the people who were asking for a king. He said, hey, you want to be like every other people? Here's what you're going to get, what you're asking for. How many know it is a deep mercy of God that nine times out of ten, he actually does not give us what we ask for because he knows what their intended consequences would be? Amen. (laughs) But here he gives them what they ask for. The king who will reign over you will claim as his own rights. He'll take your sons. Now, in your mind, start keeping track of how many times he or his is used in the next 12 verses. Unbelievable. He will take your sons, make them serve his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, of fifties, to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and give them to who? His attendants. Thanks a lot. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your male and female servants, the best of your cattle, the donkeys, he will take for who? His own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refuse. Look at that. We are stubborn. Don't go blaming Israel. That's us. No, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. And I would argue that the church is at its prophetic best. Do you know what I mean by prophetic best? The ground with which our words carry weight because we're not entered into the narratives and the lifestyle of those that we are meant to be a light in the midst of. That's what I mean by prophetic edge. Is when we've used this, we've bitten this same fruit that ancient Israel did. We want to be like everyone else. Come on, nod your head at me if you're tracking. You don't know what you're doing. When Samuel heard all of this, he repeated it to the Lord. The Lord said, give them what they want. Give them a king. So when Jesus is saying, I'm coming to fulfill, I'm coming to bring the ancient story to its glorious crescendo, that cry, even though it misfired, is a cry that I actually put in the heart of humanity, the cry for a kingdom. Do you see that? The cry for security, for peace, for blessing and prosperity. But I am coming and what I am doing in my kingdom and my will is unlike the king that you have been getting from the first time you asked for a king, I am am the king of your dreams because I'm nothing like that. I don't have time. It's so good. I didn't come to abolish. I came to fulfill. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter of two-thirds of your Bible, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the Torah, from the law, until, someone say it, everything is accomplished. For anyone who thinks that I'm just some rogue rabbi that's not anchored in the story that is unfolding in and through my ministry, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments 
and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will certainly never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mic drop. Let's wrap this up. So much is wrapped up in these four verses, 17 through 20. Essentially, Jesus is saying this, and you have read commentaries. I mean, he's saying a lot. I don't have time, but central is this. Matthew 5.20 really serves as the linchpin or the key to unlock the rest of the whole sermon and, frankly, to unlock the rest of the whole story. What God has been after from the beginning of time are image bearers whose hearts, minds, and lives are holy and fully devoted to him in relationship, to his purposes, his will, and then to reflect his character in the earth. What Jesus is saying in these four verses is the cry, the longing of every prophet, the longing of every king who was a good king. There was like three of them or two of them. <laughs> the longing and the cry of my heart from, for all eternity. Namely, a righteousness, a lifestyle that is pleasing to me, not by um, holy um, outward Constraints and parameters, a la the 613 laws, but a willful, desired, internal righteousness that springs from a heart that is ravished by the thought that they could actually do life with God Himself. Does that make sense? Let me say it again. What Jesus is saying is that the point of the law was never to bring you into the promise, it couldn't, it can only point you to the way. How many know it is incredibly prophetic that Moses himself could not enter the promised land? If he could have entered the promised land forever, we would buy into the lie of legalistic self-righteousness rule-keeping. That was the Pharisees' target, and it was a target that even though they could hit it outwardly, they could never get there inwardly. It is incredibly important that Moses himself could only see the promised land from afar because the law could never take us there. Read Romans 5, 6, 7, Galatians 3. Come after, I'll give you all the references. There's so many. Jesus is saying that which could only point you to a lifestyle that was marked by righteousness on the inside, which then would be righteousness on the outside. The law could point you there, but could not take you there. It was your tutor, your guardian, and your guide. But when you believe in what I am doing, and you acknowledge my lordship, and you acknowledge that the kingdom rests, Isaiah 9, 7, on my shoulders, I will give you what humanity is craved and has been ailed by for all creation. I'll give you a brand new heart on which I will etch my law and my righteousness where the law, when you find and hear the law, that thing in you that says, no, I'm going to put a yes in you, a righteousness that's greater than any outward attempt. The law could point you there. 
but the grace and truth that's coming through me and my ministry, ultimately through my death and my vindication at my resurrection and the pouring out of my Holy Spirit, I am going to give you what I have longed for from the beginning, which was a wholehearted lover. So Jesus isn't, when he's saying these words on this Mount of Beatitudes, he's not saying the law is bad. Come on, someone say the law is holy, righteous, and good. Read Romans 7. It's amazing. It was the manifesto of the old covenant that we don't throw away. Jesus just takes us in behind the veil to a lifestyle that can actually live in the blessing of obedience because we have a heart that wants to walk in obedience. I love the new covenant. I get excited. I'm not trying to yell at you. But this is my favorite message in the whole world. I could preach it every week, and I sort of do. I didn't come to abolish anything. I came to bring it forward. That place, the Shema, that the Jew would pray, what, three times a day? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love him with heart. So all of your heart, the prayer that you've been praying for thousands of years, but it seemed like this distant shadow echo, I am going to actually fulfill that prayer by making you a wholehearted lover of me. This is what we mean by righteous. Someone who is right on the inside, who is made right from the outside by one who alone could fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law. This is good news of the gospel. I didn't come to abolish the story of Israel. I didn't come to abolish what Moses handed down to you after he broke the first copy because of your rebellion at the golden calf. I came to fulfill my dream to have a nation, an entire people of priests who don't have to live vicariously through the elites, through the special, through the sacred, but all of my people now can live a lifestyle in my presence that mirrors my nature and my character and mediates my peace and my blessing to the nations. Jesus is saying, and everyone in the crowd, when he said that righteousness, peace, being greater than the most righteous people in his day, everyone's jaw would have dropped. Let me see your jaws drop. I gotta have a better righteousness than the ones who actually added to the 613 laws. How many know if that was the good news, it wouldn't be that good a news? No, 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 no. Jesus is saying, what I am ushering in, remember Matthew 4, 17 is crucial to understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has Come near. You've got a front row seat, disciples, and now 2,000 years later, through Christ, you still got a front row seat to what I have always been about in the world, which was to have a people of wholehearted, single focused, loving followers. Now it's actually a possibility. This thing must have been broken. Now it's actually. Christ, Romans 10.4, is the culmination. Someone say culmination. It's like what he's saying here about fulfill in Matthew 5.17 and 20. Christ is the culmination of the law. He is what flourishing humanity looks like. He is the king, unlike the king in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to close with this scripture. Check this out. This is a prayer of Solomon who, after Solomon, the kingdom divided, so, and he didn't, it just didn't go well. But his prayer was spot on. Someone say, that counts for something. Look at this description. 
of a royal king that Jesus not abolishes but fulfills. Look at this. Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. May he judge the people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. It sounds like the Beatitudes. Watch how many similarities. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. It gets better. May he, the king, be like rain falling on a mown field. You see that. Picture that picture in your mind. Like showers watering the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. May he rule from sea to sea, which is a way to say in ancient Israel, the whole world. May the desert tribes bow down and his enemies lick the dust. Keep going. May the kings present him gifts. So this picture of a king that all the nations bow down to. May the nations serve him for he will deliver the needy who cry out, blessed are the mourn. They will, okay, come on. The afflicted who have no one to help, he will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. Look at this. This is God. This is the king. He will rescue from oppression and violence for precious is their blood in his sight. Here's this prayer that Solomon prays, and he'd hoped to be this king. He wasn't the king. But he pointed to Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. I didn't come to abolish, to throw away thousands of years of history, the story. In me, the story is being fulfilled in new, exciting, glorious ways. What I have always longed for, a suitable covenant partner, don't have time. What I have, why I created humanity in the first place, out of love for fellowship, friendship, camaraderie co-reigning, co-ruling. You wanted to run your own kingdoms and every one of those kingdoms got ran into the ground and we all said amen. But repent, I'm making space in my kingdom for you right beside me. And the entrance fee into that kingdom, I'm actually paying, we'll get there later. I'm making it available. I'm making it possible through what I'm doing and what I'm fulfilling. Deuteronomy 10, poor Moses, man, he wanted it so bad. <laughs> he looked forward to a day in, he, in Deuteronomy 10, 16, when God's people would actually be able to love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Later, at the end of the Torah, Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse six, it's the same cry. God, there's coming a day when you are going to circumcise the hearts. You're gonna cut away the me, my, and no. You're gonna cut away the thing that continues to lead humanity astray. You're gonna enable your people someday to walk in righteousness and wholehearted devotion. And what Jesus is claiming on the Mount of Beatitudes 
and we're done. That wish, that dream, that desire is now happening, first of all, in me. How many know he is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God, never sin. He, listen, first of all, it's happening in me so that now it can happen through me to all. That's good preaching. In me, through me, and to all. First for the Jew, the Gentile. That's why I've come. And then for the next six teachings, he unpacks what that righteousness looks like practically about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and all the good stuff. But for now, the question is this. Has God's desire taken place in your heart? Or are you still running your own kingdom to, frankly, with all due respect, your own demise? And if you're not there yet, someone can say amen about the inevitability of the demise of running your own life. But someone today is offering a different story. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the son of Abraham, the son of David, Jesus the king is saying, come into my kingdom. Come into my kingdom. Entrance into my kingdom has nothing to do with who you are on the outside. Thus, the Beatitudes are upside down. Because none of those that they describe would be ones you would invite to your party. But Jesus is saying, the way in doesn't depend on you. And the way to participate doesn't depend on you. I'm coming to fulfill the eternal hope, which was life in my people and then life through my people to the world. But you got to repent and believe and acknowledge that I am the only suitable one to rule. I'm the only suitable king. It's so significant to me. There was, by the way, I think there were 15 he wills in the first Samuel 8. He will take your field. He will, how many did you count? 18. Okay, thank you. Perfect. Did you know that our king came not to to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you know that our king, the one who invites us into a heart transformation, a heart that has his law written on it, not as this outward tutor, but an inward desire to actually walk uprightly with God, it's actually possible. He does it in us. Did you know that's the invitation. A greater righteousness. Chad, dude, those Pharisees, there's no way I could even carry their water. Praise God, you don't have to carry their water. <sighs> Drink from the well of salvation, Isaiah 12, and allow joy to spring up from within you with one drink of the water of his righteousness, the battle you've waged to get to a place with God and your neighbor, God can definitively do a work in you and then now walk with you into an entirely new lifestyle. That's what we'll talk about the next several weeks. But it starts with repentance. And I don't know if there's anyone here this morning that says, Chatty, I've tried forever. I want to just say, you know what? I repent today. I want Jesus to be my king. I want him to be my Lord. I want all the two-thirds of the Bible, the story of humanity 
missing the point, trying and striving but never arriving. I want to receive by repentance and faith what Jesus wants to do. If that's you, could you just stand to your feet this morning? Anyone here this morning like that? Praise God. A righteousness that's greater because it's a righteousness of a transformed heart. Anyone else? It's some awesome guys. It's not a standing of shame. No one's getting called out in a negative way here. But you say, I want to be righteous on the inside. <laughs> and don't you dare think it just stays on the inside. It manifests in an outward transformed life. Amen. But that's the journey. Someone say, that's the journey. And that's why the sermon doesn't end here. And now it explodes in vibrant color. But it only makes sense in light of a transformed heart. Because if it's just trying to be better, it's only a slight improvement of the law. But if it's a result of being better, it's a result of grace. Come on. That was an accident, but that was good. That was good. The law came through Moses, and Moses is amazing, but he couldn't enter the promise. But I'm here to tell you, grace in place of that grace has now and is being released through Jesus. The word, God's intention for humanity made flesh. And he's now offering it to us by faith. So just put your hands out like you're going to receive a gift. Because all of us, it's, all it is is receiving a gift. It's called the gift of righteousness. Come on, somebody. I want to go through Romans 5, maybe next week. And all you have to do, I mean... It's not a gimmick, it's not a one-liner, but just Jesus, I want to be righteous on the inside. I acknowledge that you are king. I repent. I refuse to be like everyone else and every other nation, every other lie, to run my own show, run my own life, be the king of my own sovereign kingdom. I acknowledge that you alone are king, Jesus. And I don't take my cues from anyone else but you. You are the standard. You're the way, the truth, and the life. You're my teacher, my father, my king. And Jesus right now is offering us an invitation, come to me. I love this language. All of you who are weary and burdened. That's in the context of trying to obey the outward law without inward transformation. By the way, that's the context there. If you're weary from that cycle of perpetual defeat, perfect, come to me. <laughs> and take my teaching, my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Just say, Jesus, I want to learn from you. I want to walk with you because I'm gentle and I'm humble at heart. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light because it flows from the inside out, not the outside in. So right now, Lord, I pray for the grace that reigns through a heart that is ravished by your love. I pray for the righteousness of God to now just be an a reality that marks every person that is standing and every person that's sitting, that we would experience the greater righteousness that you have come to make available, Jesus, through you. We love you, God. We thank you. We thank you for what's offered us today. And we just say yes to it. You say, I receive the fullness of grace. I receive the fullness of mercy right now and just say it is mine by faith I don't like that say it is ours by faith <laughs> come on somebody it is ours by faith 
And then and only then, says the Lord Jesus, the teacher, the king, will you be salty and will you be a city (laughs) when there's righteousness on the inside that then trickles out to a lifestyle that looks like me, lives like me, loves like me. But the, the, the secret is this, it all flows through me. So Lord, we say yes to you this morning. Yes to you. I'm thankful you didn't get rid of the whole story. You brought it to its conclusion. Yes to you, Jesus, as Lord and King. In Jesus' mighty name, we all said amen and amen. Stand up to your feet. Stand up to your feet. I'm going to bless you. Happy Thanksgiving. I'm still full. Although I'm ready for my mom's turkey soup that she always makes after Thanksgiving. Hallelujah. Receive this benediction. P.S. I want to say this. My favorite thing to do, everyone look at me, as your pastor, is to get with you one-on-one or in clusters and to go over the scriptures. How do they apply to your life? If you're struggling, you don't understand how the pieces fit together, I will fill my entire week meeting with people like you. Call me, text me, email me, call the office. That is an invitation, that is a challenge. My favorite thing is to see fire, not in my eyes, but in the eyes of my people. Fire that's not coerced or faked, but out of an honest confession and a desire to live out the righteousness that is ours in Jesus. So if you think I'm too busy, I'm not. Everyone say, you're not. Because I'm telling you I'm not. If you want to meet for coffee, for food, I'll even buy it. I would be thrilled. I'm telling you this because nothing, I, I love preaching. I love, I preach, thou, I love it. But that one-on-two, one-on-one, one-on-four, where we just get together is my favorite, if I am allowed to have a favorite. So call me, text me, email me, anything after service. Let's set something up because I love you. I want to walk with you in the journey. If you understand, say amen. Amen. Here's the benediction. So good. Amazing benediction. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we all said amen. amen. Because through Christ Jesus... The law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, two-thirds of your Bible, short time, short term, because it was weakened by the ones whom it pointed, and it, the flesh. God did, someone say God did, by sending his own son, Advent, Christmas, woohoo! In the likeness of sinful humanity to be the once and for all sin offering. And so through him he condemned sin in humanity in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons and the daughters of God. May you leave as an overcomer walking in the powerful, life-giving Spirit of Jesus himself. And may those around you be stunned by the reality of what God has done in you, he can do in them. All in favor, say amen.